Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? As a kid, Jana Munro fell in love with the idea of justice and fighting crime, watching Dirty Harry movies in her father's cinema. When she began her career in law enforcement in the 1980s, she had to forge a path for women in the FBI, literally throwing aside her hoop earrings and high heels in order to take down the bad guys. A career which, in turn, saw her go on to teach the trade craft to a next generation of Hollywood crime fighters like Silence of the Lambs star Jodie Foster. Jana's new book, Hearts of Darkness, details her dealings with some of America's worst criminals. Jana, welcome to you. Thank you so much, Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your very first job was a probation officer, and then you were accepted into the FBI a couple of years later. What was your first day on the job like? Do you remember that feeling? Oh, I do remember that feeling. I was I was very excited. Um, however, there was no welcome wagon. And uh, that's where I kind of coined, uh, well, I didn't actually coin it. I think I plagiarized it. If uh, you don't get a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Because um, I, it was made pretty clear that I really wasn't wanted there. Nobody was mean, but nobody was welcoming. Nobody was um, inviting, and certainly nobody um, asked me for help on on cases. So this folding chair metaphor, it wasn't to uh, you know beat away the kind of dominant male culture uh, within the FBI at that time. It was more to m- make space for a woman, uh, no doubt a minority in those those years. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I wanted to be a part of the team, but I soon, you know, I, I recognized that nobody was going to invite me. So I needed to pave that way for myself. And, and I did so by, and it sounds a little cliche, but it was true by working harder and being able to prove myself. But I think my, um, experience in law enforcement with the probation department and police department helped and that I'd had some very similar experiences. So it wasn't like, you know, I had been in a field totally unrelated. This folding chair metaphor, it's great. And I wonder if you uh, happen to unfold your chair next to your future husband, because you met your husband in the FBI training, didn't you? Yes, um, absolutely. Well, we actually met applying for the FBI in the Los Angeles office, but there were thousands of people that were applying then. But um, I think what ended up being fate was that we were in the same FBI Academy class. So that was for five and a half months. Does it really help having someone who understands the job and the demands that it entails? Oh, I think it does. Um, For a myriad of reasons, Um, the job is very taxing. And most of the people that I was fortunate enough to surround myself with, my colleagues in the FBI were very dedicated and passionate. So you put in long hours and they know the culture, they know the hours, they know the acronyms. That's, you know, like most industries, you've got your own uh, verbiage. And it really helped so that if it's like, okay, I'm going on an arrest uh, of a fugitive at, at 5 a.m. and meeting with, you know, six other men, um, my husband didn't have to question that. He knew what that was about. You worked for the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI. This is a unit that's since become quite famous and much documented in film and books. And this sort of unit and the science that it relied upon was still uh, developing as at the time at, uh, when you joined uh, this unit. So it must have been a very exciting time to sort of push new ground. Oh, it was an exciting time. And I had um, 11 male colleagues 
And we really, what I appreciated very much was it was very collegial. I mean, we had our disagreements, um, but it was that camaraderie that um, you find in law enforcement. But I mean, doing a lot of the things that we did from a behavioral perspective, the things we were asked to do, like link analysis or criminal profiling, that's when you're asked what an offender might be like, where they don't have a suspect and and are looking for, you know, what would this person maybe look like, seem like, be like, where would they work? Um, working on that with my colleagues, was it was a very exciting time. So was it seen by more orthodox or traditionally trained FBI agents as somehow a bit hippy-dippy or a bit overly nerdy with its reliance on data? What was the sort of pushback? <laughs> yeah, I like your term, overly nerdy. Um, it was, and a lot of our fellow agents were not believers. I'd, I'd almost use the word kind of like hocus pocus. It's um, because it was not your traditional type of um, you know, approach to crime fighting. And so th there were those that um, hadn't looked into it that much and so were just unbelievers from the beginning. You received a call one day from serial killer Ed Kemper, known as the co-ed killer, uh, and he called you from his cell in prison to help you find and solve another case that you were working on. Tell me about that phone call. What, what went through your mind when you picked up the phone? Well, I can tell you to this day, I remember how eerie it was. And, you know, when you get goosebumps, I think most people have had those. Um, they weren't good goosebumps. It, it was eerie that um, the FBI operator, he had called FBI headquarters because I knew he didn't have my direct number and just said, you have a call. And so when he was on the line, I have to admit it was it was creepy. These types of serial killers, in order to get the information that we wanted, we appealed that, you know, you're obviously you're the expert at this or you know how to do these things. You're much smarter than we are. We need to learn from you. And I think that was his ego talking. He called because um, he didn't know whether I was working on this case or not, but wanted to offer some help because, uh, again, I think it was like he's indicating he's smarter. We're not. And so he wanted to offer his assistance. And I don't it's think there was anything altruistic about it at all. It is kind of proof that flattery uh, will, will get you anywhere, even with a serial killer. You mentioned in your book about his voice, something that you also noticed in Anthony Hopkins' portrayal uh, in The Silence of the Lamb. Tell me about the voice of a serial killer and perhaps what it's lacking as opposed to its character. Well, in this particular one, of course, all serial killers don't sound the same, but I think Anthony Hopkins did an exceptional job of having that flat, monotone, lack of intonation in a voice. It uh, And that's what several of the serial killers that I spoke with had. Um, because they were so sociopathic, they don't know or understand emotion like you and I would. Um, and so they really don't have that in their voice. Very monotone and very creepy. Some of them would describe grisly things they had done uh, in a tone that maybe you and I would discuss having a haircut or seeing a movie. Your, the two did not match. They were very incongruent. Your industry is unlike any other in the sense that it is an industry that very few people get to see firsthand, but many, many people uh, enjoy it as a dominant form of entertainment. There's so many movies and TV shows about what it is to be an FBI agent. You uh, helped Demi Moore and Jodie Foster uh, in terms of their understanding of your tradecraft for their representations on screen. What, what is that like? Is it sort of like teaching a, a, an apprentice or are they full of questions? Are they full of misnomers that you need to kind of correct? 
Um, yeah, both of them were very different, Jodie Foster and Demi Marr. But I think, yeah, you're you're correct. So, somewhat like an apprentice. And I was impressed with Foster's professionalism. And she came with questions, say something like, would you actually, would an agent say this, that something that was in the script? And of course, you know, she had um, the, the clout, if you will, uh, and could have some influence. I did not, but we would discuss that. It's like, no, that, that word really wouldn't be used. Um, and, and this would be a better one, or this would be a better approach. So it was more like an apprentice. And I think both of them had good questions. Every industry has its stereotypes. I suppose journalists are always seen as sort of chain smoking and wearing a, a peaked cap at a typewriter, <laughs> which is obviously not true. What are the common misconceptions about your job and being an FBI agent? Well, I think a lot of, well, of course, for, for my job um, throughout my entire career was like, you don't look like an FBI agent. So what the stereotypical FBI agent looked like was a, a tall man, uh, a tall Caucasian man in a navy blue suit, which we referred to as Hoover Blues, uh, out of J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover Blues, yeah, yeah. and typically no smiling, no sense of humor, and and sunglasses. That was what the typical FBI agent was supposed to look like and, and behave like. So I was usually quite a surprise. And then more in, in television now, which... Um, I didn't find it all. It's it's um, agents, male and female, depicted dropping the f bomb like every other word, and that was not. Um, I'm not passing judgment on that. Interesting, but I'm okay. just saying that. Was, yeah, that was not the world I was in at all. So, are you saying that uh, FBI agents are more uh, uh, straight like arrows more than uh, than are depicted in the movies? Uh, that was my experience. Yes, hmm. very much so. As a criminal profiler, you were sort of looking for the commonalities between cases. And you rightfully said earlier that obviously not, not all serial killers are the same, but the process of approaching a case and looking at the evidence is to use what you already know about these sorts of criminals and see if it applies again. So the calling cards of murder, if you like, what is the process of scene analysis? What are you looking for? Yeah, a crime scene analysis, especially if we're looking for link analysis, um, there, there's a story there. So it's what evidence there is, or maybe some evidence that isn't, evidence that wasn't left that meant somebody was wise to the fact that, you know, fingerprints uh, are identifiable, anything that would lead one to believe that they've done this before because they're wise about not leaving things at the crime scene versus you'd have some really messy ones um, that sometimes would be more for looking at maybe some mental instability or somebody that was either totally unaware of the type of evidence or story they were leaving at the crime scene or they didn't care. But typically it would be more that they were unaware of the evidence that they were leaving behind and each little piece does tell a part of the story. You consulted on more than 850 cases, and given that level of work, do you have to catch yourself to stop yourself from making assumptions? Is that the the, the kind of biggest downfall of a case, the idea that the observer, in, in this case you, uh, it comes with preconceptions? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question. Assumptions, bias, preconceived notion. Absolutely. I would check myself every time with that because it is easy to fall into the, oh yeah, I've seen this before. Oh, this is a pattern. No, you haven't seen this before. This is a brand new case. And I would check myself all the time, not just in looking at crime scenes, um, but also before interviews. Because the reason for an interview, you know, I know what I know, right, or what I have been told about the case. What I want to find out is what do they know and what are they willing to tell me? So 
all that preconceived baggage needs to definitely be left at the door. Well, that's where our industries cross over. The, the same can be said in journalism. I wonder, with all the popularity of uh, you know TV series around Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer, I feel like we don't hear about modern-day serial killers that much anymore. Mass shootings, certainly in some parts of the world, yes. Uh, but when it comes to serial killers, not so much, which I'm saying is, is a good thing, but I wonder if it's true. Are there still the same kinds of serial killers that were famous uh, like the ones I mentioned? I don't have any research on this, but I'm going to give you my opinion. Yes, um, I believe they are, and they're not being as publicized. And one of the things, well, I look at it as an epidemic, and I'm going to confine it right now to the United States. But you look at active shooter, you look at the the mass shootings, and it does fit into that definition. But it's a different motive. It's a different intent and reason than the ones that we were talking about that were control motivated, sexually motivated. It's it's a different type of, of killer. And that's getting, in my opinion, way too much attention. Well, Jenna, I'm very glad to know that it's people like you, not uh, people in the Hoover Blues uh, fighting the good fight, so to speak. Uh, Jenna Munro's been my guest. Her fantastic book is called Hearts of Darkness. It's out now. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. 